0: Hello, welcome to the world as we know it—a history and geography podcast where you're invited to an audio tour of each of the world's 234 sovereign states. My name is Brad.
1: My name is Kiki, and always we are your hosts. This week, our discussion is on the nation of South Sudan.
0: Sudan. the National Anthem of South Sudan, and we're going to begin this episode with some overall thoughts and, as always, our initial familiarity ratings before we did the research for the country of South Sudan. So, Kiki, what do you think?
1: Uh, To be honest, Brad, I've got, I think, a 0.5 to a 1-point familiarity rating.
0: An optimist, wow. (laughs)
1: Uh, I do not know much about South Sudan at all. I know what their flag looks like, um, and I remember hearing a lot when I was in sixth grade on the news about the civil war in Sudan and South Sudan, uh, but I cannot say that I know anything else other than that.
0: I have to concur. I would also give myself a one or less rating for South Sudan. During research, I looked up a lot about the genocide in Darfur, which I learned did not even happen in the current country of South Sudan. So even what I thought I knew, I did not.
1: So before Brad gives you the history of the country, I'm just going to give you a quick snapshot uh, so that we know what we're dealing with. So the Republic of South Sudan is a landlocked country in East Central Africa. The capital and largest city is Juba. Uh, their motto is justice, liberty, and prosperity. They've got an area of 619 100,000 kilometers, square kilometers, excuse me. The population is estimated right now at about 12.23 million, but this is probably inaccurate due to the difficulties in times of conflict and the move in and out of refugees. The rural economy is usually, it's an agricultural society, and they're transitioning away from that since 2005. The currency is the South Sudanese pound. The official language is English, uh, but it is actually the most, how did you put it, Brad?
0: I read that it's the most linguistically diverse country in the world. There's over 60 different indigenous languages that work with all the different tribal and ethnic groups.
1: So many languages, um, they are transitioning actually to Swahili in 2017 as the official political language. It is a Christian-majority country of Christians. The majority are Catholics and Anglicans. Mm-hmm. Um, and Islam is the second most popular religion. Interesting fact about South Sudan, it's our world's newest country. Just a baby geeky. And just a little baby (laughs) cuntoid. I don't mean that to sound condescending. It was formed on July 9th, 2011. Kind of copycats of that July (laughs) creation (laughs) date.
0: We see what you're going with, South Sudan. Respect. (laughs) Um,
1: And the referendum to adopt a whole new government actually passed with 99% of the vote. So people really wanted there to be a South Sudan. The Nalitic people are the primary ethnic and cultural groups. This includes the Ethnic groups of the Dinka, Nuer, Azande, and the Bari. And those are the four largest groups. There are many other smaller groups as well. There's a mixed presidential system with a national legislature. And it's President Sava Kir Mayardit. Yep. Um, and I actually have like a little fun anecdote about that.
0: So I love this fact. Um, President Mayardit, he rece- received as a gift during a political visit of George W. Bush, a black Stetson cowboy hat. And he loves this thing. He wears it every chance he gets, whenever he goes in public. And I just think it's this awesome, just personal little information about him. It's kind of like, you see a picture, and you know it's him, and I just love that.
1: Alright, so we're going to get into more about the Flag and Flag Corner after the break. Uh, But right now, Brad is going to tell us all about the history of South
0: Sudan. So fitting with the dynamic of it being the world's newest country, I'm going to try to keep this timeline within the, the last century, kind of modern times. Um, of course, there's just thousands of years of history, um, but we're going to start in the early 1700s. South Sudan is part of this Anglo-Egyptian Sudan, which is, of course, one of the colonies of the Commonwealth and under joint British-Egyptian rule. Um, this leads to some later inequities in the future when you have the um, the Arab North ethnic groups and the South African ethnic groups kind of in conflict because of what the different powers um, had in play as far as what are the primary peoples there, Um, very similar to other colonial um, African nations. In 1956, Sudan, though, gains independence as a country um, along with the other uh, independent movements in Africa like Ghana and the the Ivory Coast. Um, Unfortunately, this starts the long trends of war and division in the country. Their first civil war, which which is one of many in this country's history, began in 1962 and lasted until 1972. It was a civil war led by the southern separatist group, the Anya Nia movement. However, a group of socialist and communist Sudanese military officials um, seized power um, and outlined a policy of autonomy for the south. Um, This led to some talks, and then finally a peace agreement was signed uh, in Addis Ababa, Uh, Later in the 1970s, oil was discovered in Unity State, which is in southern Sudan. And this is going to be a major factor later as South Sudan comes to terms with what natural resources are there and how it can kind of gain autonomy from the greater Sudan as a country. Um, In 1983, the second civil war breaks out, um, fighting once again again, between the north and the south. Um, The leadership of John Garang's Sudanese People's Liberation Movement the SPLM um, abolishes South Sudan's autonomy. And then in 1988, the Democratic Unionist Party, um, part of then Sudan's ruling coalition government, um, drafts a ceasefire agreement with the SPLM, um, but it's not implemented, which leads to, in 1989, the military seizing power in Sudan. Um, Finally, in 2002, Talks in Kenya lead to a breakthrough agreement between the southern rebels and the Sudanese government on ending the civil war. Um, the Machakos Protocol provides for the South to seek self-determination after six years. This leads to North-South peace talks officially beginning. In 2005 in January, the North-South Comprehensive Peace Agreement, or the CPA, officially ends that civil war. Um, the deal provides for a permanent ceasefire autonomy for the South and a power-sharing government involving the rebels in Khartoum and a South Sudanese referendum on independence after that previously mentioned six-year interval. Um, In August 2005, uh, the South Sudanese leader, John Garang, is killed in a plane crash and he's succeeded by the now current president, Salva-Kir Mayardit. In October of 2005, an autonomous government is formed in South Sudan, in line after that 2005 peace deal. The administration is filled with with, um, former rebels, as those were the people who had the political clout following the Civil War, who had fought for the autonomy in the the Civil War. Um, However, this is a fragile peace. In November 2006, um, hundreds die in fighting centered on the southern town of Malakal. And this is the heaviest fighting between the northern Sudanese forces and the former rebels since the peace deal. Um, In 2008 March, you have more tensions. Um, There's more clashes between an Arab militia. And the SPLM in that rich region where they found oil in the, in the south. Um, and this is the key sticking point on those 2005 Accords. If there's more violence and there's more fighting, how are they going to resolve it? Um, this leads to, in 2009, finally, a discussion of an, a referendum for independence. Um, in December of that year, leaders from North and South reached deal on the terms of a referendum for independence for the south of Sudan. Um, and in January 2011, the people of South Sudan voted in favor of full independence, and that was a 98.89 approval vote. That's almost unanimous. Um, in June of 2011, governments of the North and South signed accords, demilitarized that disputed region where there was oil, and they let in a peacekeeping force from Ethiopia to help broker the arrangements. Um, and the new state is born. In 2011, July 9th, that's their Independence Day, However, and we're going to see this as a trend, um, even though South Sudan gained its independence, this is not an end to the violence, um, some of the labor pains of that new state being formed. As early as August 2011, the UN says that at least 600 people are killed in ethnic classes in the Jonglei state. Um, later in 2012, in January, South Sudan declares an actual disaster in that state after hundreds of thousands of people flee, after... More rival ethnic groups clash. This is going to feed into the the refugee and the migrant problem. That's a really current problem for South Sudan. Um, 2012 was full of more border border fighting in April. Um, 200,000 refugees flee into South Sudan from the north in August. In September of 2012, the presidents of Sudan and South Sudan, they agreed to to trade, oil, and security deals after days of talks in Ethiopia. However, in 2013, some political instability happens when the president, this misses his entire cabinet uh, after a power struggle with the then-vice president, Riek Machar. This change in government is actually not fortuitous because 2013, December, a civil war erupts, a current and ongoing civil war in South Sudan, as the president, Salva Kyr, accuses this former vice president of plotting to overthrow him. This leads to rebel factions, seizing control of several regional towns, Thousands are killed, many more flee, fueling the refugee crisis, um, and Ugandan troops have to intervene on the side of the government, um, President Salva Kiir's government. In 2014, in April, the UN says pro-Machar forces sack the oil town of BNTU, killing hundreds of civilians. Later that year, in August, peace talks begin in the Ethiopian capital of Addis Ababa, and drag on for months as the fighting continues and The different diplomatic groups come to discuss in the Ethiopian capital. Um, In 2016, April, Riek Machar finally returns to Juba, the capital, and is sworn in as the first vice president in a new unity government. So a coalition is reached, but he's sacked later in July after further conflict and he goes into exile. Um, In November of 2016, the UN sacks the Kenyan commander of that ongoing peacekeeping mission over their failure to protect citizens during the July violence. Um, and Kenya withdraws all of its troops from the peacekeeping mission. Um, Japanese peacekeepers act- actually arrive in South Sudan for the first time in nearly 70 years. And it's the first time Japan has deployed its soldiers overseas with a broad mandate to use force if necessary. So that's an extremely interesting um, UN cohesion of different cultures. Um, in 2016, in December, the UN Commission on Human Rights says a process of ethnic cleansing is underway in several parts of the cl- country. A claim the president denies... But the claims of ethnic cleansing or genocide lead to a huge bolstering of forces and attention there. Um, in 2017, a famine is declared early in the year in parts of South Sudan. Um, the UN describes it as a man-made catastrophe caused by both the war and the economic collapse caused therein. In May 2017, so pretty recently, President Kiir declares a unilateral ceasefire and launches a national dialogue with the rebel groups trying to end the violence finally Um, and and in August 2017 uh, the number of refugees from that crisis um, had passed the one million mark and that's just from South Sudan people fleeing to Uganda according to the UN and so that's kind of where we stand now.
1: And uh, as of 2017 South Sudan has the highest score on the fragile states index uh, which means that it's the least stable country in the world right now which can be expected from a new country.
0: So it's definitely a country in flux, a country dealing with lots of problems, problems endemic from its creation, um, lots of violence, and you know ongoing UN attention there. Um, But that historical timeline takes us to our first break. When we come back, we're gonna go into more in-depth discussion and some cultural discussion. So welcome back. You just heard a song from South Sudan Music TV. It's called Haganah by the Anataban Group. And they are actually an artist collective in South Sudan that does a lot of mixed media like murals and music and awareness campaigns. And this song is incredibly catchy. Uh, I wish I could have played all four minutes of it. Uh, but enough about my new favorite song. Uh, we're going to kick things back off with a trip to Kiki in the flag corner.
1: So the interesting thing about the South Sudanese flag is that it has six colors and the only other national flag to have six colors is South Africa. But the colors on the South Sudanese flag are black, white, red, green, with a blue chevron and a yellow star in the chevron. So these are Pan-African colors but they actually symbolize different things. The South Sudanese have assigned different meanings to them according to what they want them to represent for their people. And we'll get into that now. The Black represents the Black African ancestry of the South Sudanese and the traditional name of their land, which is derived from the Arabic, the Lad al-Sudan, which means Land of the Blacks. Hmm. The white of the flag is a symbol of peace and goodwill for all. Red stands for blood and sacrifice of heroes and martyrs through the ages. Green symbolizes agriculture, forests, natural wealth, and prosperity, as well as their progress. The blue chevron represents the everlasting Nile River system which flows through the land and provides sustenance and the yellow star is a symbol of hope and determination for all the people. Uh, so you can see a picture of the flag also on our blog the world as we know at wordpress.com We'll also be tweeting them out or you can probably just Google it.
0: <laughs> One thing I'm loving about the flag corner is that we're getting these the symbolism that's concurrent through the, like the Pan-Arab colors the Pan-African colors there's a lot more going on with how a country picks their flag who's around them what cultures are around them i just play it's really really interesting and um, it's awesome yeah
1: i also realized i did not describe how the colors are arranged on their flag and i should say that the black white red and green are stripes the white are thin little stripes across and then the black white and red are equally spaced stripes and then the blue chevron originates from where the flagpole would be or how the flag is hanging and the yellow star lies within the blue chevron so that's it that's been the flag corner been happy to tell you about it uh what's next brad
0: yeah so we're going to start things back off with some of our overall thoughts about sudan and leading into more in-depth discussion kiki
1: so i did mention at the beginning of the podcast that the first time that i really heard anything about Sudan or South Sudan, was when I was in sixth grade, we watched this show called Channel One, uh, and this was in 2004, because I'm 25 now. And every day they would talk about the refugees in Darfur, what was happening in Sudan during this civil war. So that's when I was first introduced to this concept of a pretty, what's a seemingly war-torn country in Africa. Yeah. Uh, and then it reappeared my freshman year of college with what many people may remember as Coney uh, 2012. Do you remember that, Brad?
0: Oh, I remember this. This was, I remember someone sitting me down and saying, you have to watch this. This is going to change things. And I was, I mean, for first impressions, it hit me really hard. What do you remember about it, Kiki?
1: So, like, as a college freshman, pretty eager to get involved in any way. This was, like, one of the best marketing campaigns I've ever seen because everybody watched that video. They had those Coney 2012 Sponsor packs or whatever with the t-shirts and the bracelets. The bracelets, yeah. And uh, you could buy them, and you would donate money. Oprah was re- was promoting it. Uh, and then they had a concert on our campus. I think we had a march really... and a rally. There was chalk art everywhere. And this was all happening in May. So it's like Coney 2012 happened, then finals happened, and then absolutely nothing. Just
0: radio silence. Uh,
1: but so when you learn more about Kony 2012, we do learn about Kony being the leader of what's called the Lord's Resistance Army, or the LRA. And this came up in another documentary that I watched in preparation for this episode about the Lord's Resistance Army and kind of what they're doing. And they're one of those groups that is a Christian cult. They're violent. They take child soldiers. And they kind of terrorize people, from what I understand. So I think that's one of those things that when we look at the destabilization of South Sudan, it's a contributing factor. And it's something that people, like even teenagers or young adults in the United States, can remember as something that even had a very small impact on their lives.
0: I remember reading about some of the main reasons that those initial UN peacekeeping forces, especially from Japan, came in during, that, during the ongoing civil wars because the rates of child soldiers and child mortality became extremely high. And so... That, feeds right into the coney 2012 message and what was the name of that documentary that you mentioned
1: it's called witness south sudan um, it was a french journalist it was on hbo i found it through an academic resource but i'm pretty sure you could find it elsewhere and i definitely recommend it it was very insightful it was interesting to get um, some more perspectives of people who've been there and people who are living that life and see what it's like
0: no i think I think that's fascinating it's awesome um it's such a new country and with like, i mean with a country that's both war-torn and new, and part of their existence as a new country is also being war torn with a civil war. I think any kind of perspectives and real lens we can get is important.
1: But, like, you know, things that aren't warlike, and some of the things that do show that South Sudan is stabilizing or that they're on a positive track. Um, and I think one of the main things that we can look at is their participation in the Olympics. And I will talk about the Olympics literally all the time because it because it is.
0: <laughs> Kiki is a known lover of the Olympics. I've... This this past year, we watched the opening ceremony of the Olympics at a noisy bar. The sound wasn't even on, but as the joint Korean team came in tears were shed real emotions were felt this is a real thing
1: but it's almost for every team that tears are shed and I can't watch most of them because I will just start crying and I just cry through the whole thing I just love the Olympics so much Uh, I know that there are problems and I acknowledge those problems but it's one of it's one of my favorite things that I look forward to every other year but I think it should be said of South Sudan, though, that they had three athletes in the 2016 Olympics and in the 2014, no, the 20 2016
0: summer, which was Rio. Yeah. Yes.
1: But there was one who participated in the previous Summer Olympics to that, so it would have been 2012.
0: Was, was he under but that? But he wasn't on yes. the South Sudanese
1: border because it wasn't an Olympic-recognized country yet. However, he did participate in 2016, uh, and then there was two men and a woman all participating in track and field events. Uh, no one won anything,
0: but they were there. I mean, the vast majority of people don't win a medal, but it's, that's yeah, not the that's point of being like in the Olympics. Yeah. Um,
1: so I think that's like one of those things that we can start to recognize officials and athletes and people from this country and say, well, they're, they're doing it. I mean, that sounds condescending. No, no I, as
0: long as their walkout song is Ohaganah, oh <laughs> I, I am for South and Andrew's in anything.
1: I guess that's their path to victory too. They should just get what's that group's name, uh, Nattavan. Yeah. To do all of their promotional videos and stuff for especially their athletes.
0: We'll get them on the horn, Kiki.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'll just tweet at them from our Twitter account, the world as we know it podcast, and see what they what
0: they what we can work out. Yeah, diplomacy in 2018.
1: I mean, it did cancel Roseanne. <laughs>
0: <laughs> save it for current events. Lord above. My Job in bombs. Um, tell us more about the, uh, the foundation's date um, stipulation you had talked about earlier.
1: Yeah. So I was going to save this for the end, but I guess it doesn't matter now.
0: <laughs> nope. Um,
1: but I did want to make a, a note uh, to you, our listeners, that um, formation dates and the dates of independence are going to be a little bit iffy through this podcast. We're doing our best and it's going to be easier for countries like South Sudan with very clear dates of independence in modern times, but it's actually going to link for other countries to before the League of Nations, which is in 1919, where things get really unclear, where those dates for some countries might be very good and might be very accurate, whereas some older countries or other countries, they might be more mythical dates or might be less established or firmly recorded dates. So we just wanted to mention now that Usually, when we talk about the date of reformation for a country, it's going to be an estimate. And we are still going to focus on countries and the borders as we know them today. Yeah. So this may be, like, a little bit of a shorter episode for a country with a shorter history. Uh, Do you have any changes in your knowledge or your comfort rating with South Sudan, Brad?
0: I mean, it definitely has to be. When you start so low of a familiarity rating as a 0.5 or a 1, as I did... There has to be an increase. Just well,
1: actually, I learned negative things, so... <laughs>
0: Kiki unlearned things. She doesn't even know what the name of this podcast is. I'm afeard.
1: Oh, what um, is phone? <laughs> what is country? I don't know.
0: Kiki's getting assistance as we speak, folks. But um, as for my familiarity rating, I think it increased by a, like a couple points, like to a 3 out of 10. Um, I Everything that I learned was the first time I'd ever heard it about South Sudan, the first time that I had encountered that breath of politics culture listening to all the different musics listening to um the different like talks about the different civil wars um going back even as far as you know you learn about colonialization of african countries but each country's independence and the way they loosened those holds is unique and different and for south sudan there's a lot there um so just going down the rabbit hole of this country i learned a tremendous amount so three out of ten after
1: that's a good one. That's a good amount to learn. Um, I learned, I'd say about about the same, probably a little less, because you did the research for the timeline yeah. and you taught me the history, so you obviously learned a little more than I would. But I feel like I learned a lot from, from their beginnings and their origins to where they are now, and that does help me to build a better perspective of South Sudan. And I'm eager to see how the country will develop and keep moving. It's going to be cool to see a country within our lifetime really come to take shape and to establish themselves. I'm really looking forward to seeing what South Sudan is going to be like in the future and how their individual culture will really arise. And I think groups like Anataban and Ohagana <laughs> are the things that will start it. And especially like with their their movement and what they're doing for their people.
0: You've just made me realize that, you know, the people that wrote their national anthem are still alive. I mean the people that are writing the histories of South Sudan who were there at its founding are still alive. I mean it's it's a very much a modern like project, the founding of this country. And I mean like we're I mean even the United States is a young country in some eyes. I mean, we're still learning um like about our history and our founding and stuff like that and re looking at it, but theirs is so modern. It's awesome.
1: Yeah, to actually like think that there is a country too that is in the time of the internet. So there's immediate history being recorded literally constantly on social media and personal accounts, as well as on official documents and databases. So like all of this stuff is happening immediately and it's gonna have probably like the greatest impact on their country because everything that we know about them can be recorded now, unlike most other countries in history that we're going to be exploring in this podcast.
0: Um, So any last thoughts before we kick it off to Karnavinsky?
1: Uh, you know, none for me, but I think we could like take a break real quick.
0: Alright, we're gonna take a break and hit you with some current events after the break.
1: Welcome back to the world as we know it. You just heard another segment of Oh Now because Brad will not stop listening to it.
0: Shameless. I had no shame. I love it.
1: Um, and again, we're pretty sure that we are okay in terms of copyright law. I've been playing it as long as it's less than 30 seconds. So I guess we'll find that out. So we're going to conclude our podcast by like talking about what's new in the world. So what happened this week, Brad?
0: So this past week, I actually filled out my bracket for the World Cup coming up in June. And as of this week, no games have started yet, but there's lots of articles coming out about Russia's preparations. I read once, like scandalous kind of finding that Russia may be like moving away or like killing stray dogs to make like the city seem nicer and cleaner. Um, I had this kind of ominous like viewpoint of like the Russia World Cup, especially the Qatar World Cup coming up in a few years, where there's been some controversy with like people dying during stadiums being built, especially with like the hot and cold tension between the United States and Russia and especially the the uh the Russia poisoning of those two people in, in mm-hmm. Britain um that the alleged involvement there I think there's just going to be some political tensions and I think it's going to be really interesting to watch and I hope nothing happens but it's just going to be an undercurrent to the sports
1: <laughs> the sports <laughs> You know
0: how people talk. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, what's up with you, Kiki? Uh,
1: so, I don't really pay attention to the news all that much. I should. I get the highlights, but it's just kind of sad. So, I do read a lot of books. So, this week I'm just going to talk about two books I read. One was All Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara, who is uh, Patton Oswald's late wife. It's a book about the Golden State Killer who was just caught like oh, snap, yeah. Yeah, like three weeks ago. It's kind of huge in the true crime community what just happened in a
0: true crime community
1: there's a lot of us brad. there's
0: dozens of us <laughs> dozens
1: <laughs> okay but it's um, true crime is an interest of mine so it was really interesting to read this book of this woman and how dedicated she was to finding the golden state killer uh who was a prolific rapist in the 70s uh murdered 12 people Jesus. in northern california he was a real piece of shit brad uh and they just found him And the other book I read was uh, comparatively a lot less controversial. It was about national parks. It's called National Parks by Dayton Duncan. And I actually borrowed it thinking that it would be a pretty dry but informative book. I'm not going to lie.
0: Dayton Duncan is a great podcast name. Jealous. It
1: truly is. Um, But basically, I I mean, I usually pick out books that I think are going to teach me something. And I really wasn't expecting how good this book would be in terms of the narrative. It was deeply emotive about these people who are so dedicated to getting national parks in the United States and having these national lands be preserved for everyone to enjoy. So as like an environmentalist myself, it was great to see or read about these kind of unsung heroes of America's landscapes.
0: That's awesome. That save
1: these things. So I definitely recommend that. The National Parks, colon, America's Best Idea by Dayton Duncan and I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara.
0: Well, thank you guys so much for tuning in to the episode of The World as We Know It.
1: So you can catch us on our Twitter, The World as We Know It podcast, uh, and also at our blog, TheWorldAsWeKnowItPodcast.wordpress.com, World as We Know where you can find our resources for every episode, as well as recordings and basically all of our information and the timelines for your own use. Uh, so.
0: And now, drum roll next week's country is Antigua, Antigua and, Barbuda. and Barbuda.
1: Two islands, one country.
0: A lot of family fun coming up next week.
1: So goodbye, or as they would say in South Sudan, Kouhari!